0: Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners to prepare for exit so you can rise value and then orchestrate an exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights Podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsort and today I'm talking to Dawn Bloomer from Productive Pressure. Dawn's an exit planner based in LA. Welcome to the podcast, Dawn.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Daryl. I'm excited to be here.
0: Uh, Well, let's not get too carried away, but uh, (laughs) what I'm planning on doing is tapping into your expertise because you've got quite an interesting background as an exit planner. And yes, we've had a number of exit planners on the podcast and listeners will be out there thinking, not another exit planner, but you've got some particular expertise where you focus and specialize on professional service industries. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. I started my career as a Veterinarian for racehorses, which I ran and worked in a practice for over 20 years. And so that's where my background in the professional services industry came.
0: Right. So I guess a vet practice is a professional service. And, and we were talking earlier and you were saying, well, look, uh, I've, I've worked in vet practices and I've, I've exited myself out of vet practices a couple of times. And, and since I've been working with a number of other service providers and professional service providers, and what we've found is that a practice uh, a professional service where we tend to refer to them as practices they're all pretty similar in the way they're they're run. What are some of those similarities that you keep bumping up against?
1: so some of the similarities I find are that first of all, the reason that people get into a profession is usually because they're really passionate about some mission or or some process. And they they really love doing it because in order to get into a profession, of course, you have to be very highly competitive and a high achiever to even get into the program in the first place. And then what happens is we get into the profession and we think, well, geez, I'm going to do this. I might as well work for myself. I can probably do a better job, probably make a little more money. And so then we either buy into an existing business or we start our own, which seems like a terrific idea at the time. Until we get down the road and we realize that we've had no formal business training and so we're really kind of accidental entrepreneurs if you will and i think that's what starts a lot of the challenges that are common across the board in professional services practices
0: yeah so and yeah all of the professions have a lot of formal education um, to begin with and as you say they teach us how to be really good at what we do but they don't teach us how to run a business in doing what we do. And everything about being successful in a business, I guess, is all those other bits. It's not about your technical expertise. They're just a cost of entry.
1: That's right. And I think I, I think I know it was for me. I think one of the challenges is as much as we are all lifelong learners, I think we're also all we we all have that sense that we're supposed to be the most responsible the most knowledgeable the most whatever person in the room and so sometimes it's hard to admit that we don't know what we're doing and so we just feel we figure out ways to compensate so i know a lot of us just work harder we bill more we do more procedures we do more whatever and so we're pretty good at increasing the top line generally the problem is all the fallout from everything that happens from just trying to jam more production in, if you will.
0: Yeah. Do more stuff, do more operations, get busier. And in the professional service world, more billable hours.
1: Exactly. And therein lies the major rub, right? So the thing we all struggle with is how do we make more money without just doing more work? And and I think that's something that is, I mean, it's kind of a pet project of mine. I know it is of yours from our conversation earlier, is this whole idea of, Instead of trading time for money, how do we just trade value for money? How do we how do we sort of shift that mindset so that we're not always just trying to bill more uh, in hours?
0: Yeah, it reminds me of that story, and, and I know this one's been going around—not just the internet, but the world—for for probably donkey's years. It's about the captain of the submarine who's you know shut, couldn't couldn't kickstart you know his ignition. I guess wasn't working on the submarine and he got this expert in this guy come in to to fix it and uh what he did is he walked around the submarine for a few minutes and he looked at all the pipes and he went up and down and up and down and looking at all the all the you know the pipes and and where to what he needed to do to fix and why the 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 submarine wasn't working and and eventually he pulls out his spanner and he and he taps on a pipe a couple of times and he says there you go give that a give that a go to the well, world to the captain and the captain's able to get the sub started <clears throat> And the guy presents his invoice to the captain, and I don't know, it's ten thousand dollars or something. And and the captain goes, "Hang on a minute! It only took you a few minutes. How come the invoice is ten thousand dollars?" And the uh, the engineer says, "Yeah," and he asks for a break breakdown of the invoice, and he goes, "Okay, well, um, you a know, hundred dollars for for tapping and doing the work, and nine thousand nine hundred for knowing where to tap." and
1: uh, <laughs> Exactly. And that's the thing. And I think what we don't appreciate often is that most, most of us know that like I'd rather pay more to get something done well and, and even faster if possible, than pay less so that you can take longer to do it so that you can charge me appropriately. I mean, really the incentives to hourly charging and billable hours are just so upside down. Why would you want to incentivize people to work, longer, take longer to do the thing for you than just to get it done.
0: Yeah. And and because we're talking about what can business owners do to prepare their business to make it even more attractive, so it can be attractive to be acquired, so that they can create an exit and and exit on their terms and, and maximize the value. Now that's counterintuitive or it's almost the opposite for a lot of professional service firms or practices in the way they have historically been run because the more senior you, are, senior you are in a professional practice, the higher your hourly rate and the more pressure on you to do more hours to generate more fees for the business. Now, if I'm looking to buy that business, a consulting practice, and, I, and, and you're the owner and you're the highest fee owner, and what happens to those fees once you leave the business? so exactly well, what do you exactly. do about that with your right. clients? right
1: right so so one of the things that we have a lot of conversations around are that whole idea of most of the time especially in smaller firms or practices you have um that the founder or the or the longtime owners who are really integral to everything about the business and they're proud of it like you know well yeah i am a rainmaker i'm the one who brings in all the money i'm the one who all the all the customers are you know all the clients are really attached to and they don't understand that that's actually the polar opposite of what, what buyers are looking for why would a buyer want to spend a lot of money to pay you a business that relies on you and then have you walk away with the money so this is one of the things we have a lot of conversations about i think that there is a real trend across uh, service industries now to look at how we can package what we sell differently so that it becomes more of a product and less of a service, if you will. It's still a service, but the way that we're um, packaging it looks different. So in, for example, so in veterinary practices, a lot of practices will have wellness programs where you pay a certain amount and you know you're going to get a certain amount of service with it. It provides a type of recurring revenue that is more reliable and can be, you know, uh, can be budgeted for, which buyers really like. We know that subscription, anything that's subscription-based has more value than something that's one-off and has to constantly be marketed and reproduced, if you will.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's not only good for the, the owners of the business because they, they can budget for this regular cash flow coming in. It's also good for the, the customers of the business because they know exactly what it's going to cost and there's no surprises. I know I've worked with a number of accountants over the years and, and, and one of the things they get frustrated about in running their business and, and, and tell me if this is your experience is that they they go and they do the work they do the professional work they do exactly what's required for the client and then at some point when they're finished and they they every now and then they they roll up their work in progress and they'll send out an invoice to the client and the invoice goes I didn't expect this invoice coming um, the client says well, what's this for well I did all these hours or my team did all these hours on on your on your file and they're going well i didn't didn't wasn't expecting this. And, and so what the first thing they do is they cave and they go, well, okay, well, we'll discount it by 15%. <clears throat> and the client begrudgingly pays, even though they're getting a 15% discount, you know, because there was no expectation set.
1: Right. They, and I, they, and
0: yeah. So, yeah, so I think that's issue. a really
1: big deal. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a great example, right? Is, and and I take it even a little further. I think if you can switch from relying on expectations and change it to relying on agreements. So if you're agree, if someone's agreeing to pay you a certain amount of money for a certain service on the outset, and you've b- made it very clear what the scope of that is, yeah, then it just, they feel good about it. Once they've paid for it, they actually believe they made a good decision. So they're going to continue to feel good about that decision because that's just how our brains work. Right. Yeah. So I think that at the end of the day, it, It really makes it better on both sides. And then to your point, as you're thinking about exiting, if you can prove that you've had this history of the subscription type model, or even if it's packages that you're selling a certain thing that you do repeatedly, and it's a package, even if it's a one-off thing and it's a package, and you know, you're going to get that much of it, much for it every time. Like, say, for example, you were doing a financial plan for someone. You say, I have a flat fee for financial planning. It's X amount of dollars. And that's your foray into someone understanding what type of services you offer, and you set them up for everything. But they know going in that no matter how long it takes them to get their financial documents together, how long they drag it out, they're going to pay that much money. I actually think it provides an incentive for them to be more engaged in the process because they know they've paid for it up front. They don't feel like there's anyone's dragging it out.
0: Yeah, they know exactly what they're getting, they know what they've paid for. it's it's as close as you can get to something being tangible in a service world.
1: Right. And to your point, that's that's really our biggest problem, right? is pretty much everything that we sell is intangible. And then the things that we sell that are tangible, you don't want to mark them up to a ridiculous amount because people that doesn't make people feel good either.
0: Yeah. So So they're intangible assets, but and an intangible you know uh, intangible product. Is basically a promise that we're going to do something for them. So, um, how can we, you know, bring that to life and and give them something to feel? So, if if packaging the services and and pricing and packaging the services and bundling them up is 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 that the first thing you do with your clients when looking to maximise their valuation, or have you've got something you look at before that?
1: So, so before that, really, the first thing we look at is the bandwidth of the owner or owners. Because really, usually the biggest problem at the outset is that they don't even have the bandwidth to take on any kind of restructuring of of processes and things. So normally what we look at first is where where is the owner in, in all of this? How? How much time are they spending doing things that they shouldn't be doing? How much energy are they expending on things that really isn't in their wheelhouse or should be done by someone else? Because we need to free up their time so they can come up to this 30,000 foot view and start thinking from a more strategic place. Because oftentimes, Daryl, they're just so caught up in it. They just have their head down. They put their head down and they're just doing the thing and more of the thing and more of the thing. Yeah. So we really have to get them there first. Because if I come to you and say, Daryl, like you're already working 80 hours a week and you know, you're know you you're doing all the things all the time. And I say to you, Daryl, we're going to figure out how to put this package together. It's going to be amazing. You're going to say, you know, no. <laughs> like, when am I going to do that?
0: Yeah. So. I had someone say to me once, oh, I get it the more I work in my business, the less it's worth from bingo. Yes,
1: that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I I think the other piece of that for the, for the leaders is that the leaders also have to show a a certain, uh, they have to demonstrate a certain amount of self-leadership if they expect other people to follow their lead. Right? So if your mentality is that if the boss is always the one who's, you know, head down doing all the thing, everybody else feels like they have to do the same thing and I really believe it's a big piece of why we're struggling so much to staff professional services firms and practices because people just don't want to work that way anymore. I think you know, I mean, we can go on and on about the great resignation and all the things, but the reality is people do not want to work the way that you know maybe we grew up working yeah. or being expected to work.
0: I recall you, you've just reminded me of a conversation I had with someone who did a lot of work with uh, legal practices and uh, legal businesses. And he said, Darrell, do you you know the average lifespan of a CEO in a law practice? I've gone, hang on. And I had to think and I've gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I I can see a number of law practices who have tried to restructure and put in a CEO in there who's not fee earning. And he said, the average lifespan of a CEO in a law practice is two years. I've gone, what? And he says, because they put them in there, they come with all these great ideas, but after a couple of months, they start to go, well, hang on a sec, this person's just an overhead. We're paying them a big salary and they're not bringing any fees in because they're so locked in that mindset that everyone has to bring fees in and they're not generating or running a business model similar to most other businesses. They just get stuck in that service and charging for the time. And all they see is is 40 hours a week of potential fees that could be earned. And they don't see the value that can be added for running for the areas of working on the business. So he said, you know, after a couple of years at max, they get frustrated with this person, so they let them go. And then you'll see them try again in a few years and they'll try again. And they get stuck in this vicious circle and the average lifespan of a CEO in a legal practice is a couple of years. Yeah. So uh, avoid I, that one.
1: I think, yeah, consultants run the same risk, right? Because we come in and say, I mean, it's it's obvious to us, right? As outsiders, it's so easy for us to see from with fresh eyes, where the sticking points are. But I know from when I was a practice owner, it is very hard to wrap your mind around doing things completely differently, especially when everybody else is still doing them the same way. You know, you you look at all the other, well, but all the other practices are doing it this way. Everybody else does it this way. And it's yeah. getting past that mindset and saying, well, okay, well, let's be a first mover on this. Let's go, let's, let's do it differently. Let's show how it can be done. Um, yeah. and and once you can sort of shift that thinking a little bit it's amazing the power of it but that's why to me where where i start with my clients is always at the very very high level that, of getting clarity around where they are you know where they really want to go and then reverse engineering the process to get them there and that sounds it's a bit of an oversimplification you know it sounds kind of fluffy but but really people often have set goals that are not in alignment with their values or what they're good at. It's just, it's what they think they should be setting goals for. And that's one of the things that often takes them off in the wrong direction. Yep. Exit, exit plan aside.
0: So we've got a business that we're working with. We're having a look at how they're working. We're having a look at their capacity or their yeah, their bandwidth to think about the things that they need to do to prepare for their exit. What I think you're saying is the first thing you look at is is how do I get them to spend some time off the tools and start to ease them off the tools? Um, then once they get a taste for it, um, you know, sometimes once they get a taste for working on the business, they'll, they'll never go back because, because often it is like a career shift. It's a, it's a new career. It's a new job working on the business and you've taken them off the tools and, and, and you've opened their mind to a whole new way of doing things. So you've got their bandwidth. One of the first things you look at once you've got them committed to dedicating some time not working uh, in the business, then you start going, okay. So let's have a look at the the pricing and packaging. You work on that. <clears throat> what else do you look for, Dawn, in 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 service type practices of of how you can increase their value so that they they will actually exit for a for a decent valuation?
1: Sure. So I mean, service practices still have lots of challenges with how their processes are. Oftentimes, because so many service practice functions are very hands-on, yeah. it, it sometimes takes them a while to look at doing things differently, like automating or you know how do they delegate things? What systems, what are repeatable things that are done over and over and over again that we can either delegate to someone else or we can actually automate it entirely? It's amazing how many little things, I mean, now with the advent of AI, who knows where all that's going to go. But I feel like embracing some of that and technology is a huge opportunity for people to make things run better, as long as they go into it in a very careful and deliberate way. I think the biggest mistake people make with technology is they see some new shiny thing at a conference or something, and then they go, oh, I'm going to get that. That software, that looks like, that's amazing. That salesperson said it would do all these things. I, I'm saying this because I've done it. Um, so, we all yeah, have
0: gone. It's okay. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a good company, but I think that's the thing. I think it's easy to go to the conference. You get all jazzed up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this, but being really deliberate about making sure that you know what your goals are and then picking tools that will help you do that better, more efficiently, and then getting the right people in to set it up so that you're not just kind of muddling through it. So I think technology is a place where it's really important. I think there are a lot of places where you can make your business more valuable by just mitigating risk. and it's, it's, I think that's a commonly overlooked one. It's not very sexy. Um, it sounds kind of boring, but things like making sure you have the right insurance coverage, making sure that you have, um, you, you know, that your that your regulatory compliance, if you're in highly regula- regulated field, which many of us are, um, that that's all laid out and that you have reviewed your shareholder agreements. Cause this is one of those where, you know, people don't immediately think about how their shareholder agreements. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on TV, but I will tell you, I've had so many issues with shareholder agreements, both within my own you know career and with clients, where when the shareholder agreements were originally written, they were they made sense. they were great, but nobody's looked at them for ten or fifteen years, and now you've got people who are in a different phase of their life and and that can have a huge impact on value when it comes to if you wait until you're at a point where you're trying to decide what the next steps are um when not everyone's on the same page anymore. So those yeah. are the kind of things that you want to build. My I part of my point about that is you want to have systems for all of these things and you want to be reevaluating all these things on a regular basis. They're things that we tend to do on sort of one, oh, we get the insurance and then we've got insurance, this is good. We've done the shareholder agreement, oh good. You know, we've got our regulatory process, cool. But everything changes over time. And so reevaluating that stuff and actually having systems and processes that force you to remember to do those things are really important when you're super busy all the time.
0: Yeah. So anything that you're going to do more than once, um, and especially if there's several, um, I guess, partners in a practice, often you'll have yes. silos and, and you'll have each partner running running similar verticals within the practice, and they're all doing things differently. So there's no consistency across the practice. So what you're saying is, let's get systems in place, anything that someone not just me, but someone who's going to do more than once. Let's systemize it and uh, um, and automate it as well, if we can.
1: Yes, and that's a really great point about silos and and partners, and because it's true. Because oftentimes it will get divided up that way, or or a particular partner will be in charge of a particular aspect of the business. But that's when communication becomes really important and. That would be another thing that we work a lot on is communication. Communication includes things like how do you hold meetings, like what, why are you having meetings? Do they really matter? Because we waste a lot of time on unnecessary meetings. But that whole idea of making sure that your communication is very, very clear and yep. efficient.
0: And and one of the things that I've heard mentioned before is is we got you know when we do systems and systemize our business, we tend to just look at the operational systems, the workflow from from sale through to client fulfillment. And what's the system for making sure that's happening? But we, we also want to have a look at management systems. What's, what have we got for our leadership team that ensures that when we set our budget or our forecast for this year, that what are we doing every day, every week to make sure that we're heading towards those budgets and fulfilling it? Because when it comes to getting a, a good valuation for our business, if we are hit and miss with how we achieve our budgets, that's going to reduce our valuation but if we can demonstrate that every year we hit we we set a budget or a forecast in our business plan and we get pretty close to it a little up or a little down that's far more consistent reliable and 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 therefore healthy for our valuation
1: absolutely then and, and i think that's a great point i think that um that whole idea of you know when i talk about that 30,000 foot view that i start with it it really is about getting clarity on where you wanna go. And then once you've got that roadmap sort of mapped out for three years, one year, you know, and then 90 days, then what you wanna do is have some sort of a dashboard. It doesn't have to be elaborate depending on the size of your business or the type of your business, but everyone needs to agree on what the important things are that you're tracking. Because yep. to your point, just for managing the business and running the business and doing it well, you need to have targets. It's not be, not even to make more money or whatever, but just to make sure, at the very least, you're not slipping. And then if you can demonstrate that you've been tracking that over time, it, it, to your point, it makes the valuation so much more uh, robust when, you, when they go and, and do their due diligence.
0: So we're looking at systems. We're looking at structures. We need some sort of vision of where we're headed. <clears throat> we want to get the, the proprietors, the founders, the partners, if you like, off the tools um and these are the things what are so are are there any other things that when you go into a service type business where you go where you've got your scanner out where you're going here's here's what you're looking for what are the red flags or the telltale signs that you are going hey look i need to change that off i'll note that one to solve that but we need to get that one fixed as soon as possible are are there some red flags that you go for
1: yeah there are in fact Oftentimes, because, again, service businesses are generally very tied to the people who are providing them. And so one of the things that I'm always interested in is is the people piece of it. I think that especially it, it obviously all starts with the leadership, but all down the line is is our. Are the relationships good? Are the people working together well? Does everybody have the same vision? And sometimes it's because there's no communication. Sometimes it's because everyone is operating in silos. But, but for me, the people piece of it is is a big, a, a big uh, concern, and it's often the biggest challenge because getting everyone on the same page can be very difficult. So that's number one, I would say the people, um, and then making sure that they're working within their strengths. Oftentimes why people are unhappy in their role is that they're doing a bunch of stuff that either they're not very good at, or they don't enjoy. Like there are certain things that I'm really good at, but they exhaust me. I I'm, they just completely wear me out. And so I'm in a much, I'm a much better, um, I'm a much more productive person if I am doing things that I'm really good at. And so I look to make sure that everybody is working in their strengths yeah. and, and that the communication is really good so that we're not having unnecessary side conversations over here and people aren't complaining over here and nobody knows what's
0: going on. Yeah. So we're talking culture now, right? Yes. Yeah. And yeah. do you have a, any specific tools that you use to manage culture?
1: Sure. So, so first of all, I think that that it plays into the whole idea of doing some assessments to start. Now, I'm not an over-assessor. Uh, I like to do some basic assessments. I like people to have an idea. I think it's amazing people. You know, we think about these things all the time because we've taken courses and we've educated ourselves and we've we've done lots of assessments and we understand their value. A lot of people in those roles have never done like a Clifton Strengths Finder or um, have never looked at, you know, what is their, their feeling about their business even and their role in the business. So I, I do like to do some basic assessments because I think it's good to get a baseline. And I really think it helps bring awareness. A lot of the times it's just an awareness. And then there is always some coaching around how people communicate with one another because culture comes culture comes from the top. And so if there's toxicity in the leadership, then it's really hard to expect your employees to have a good culture. You can't have a good culture in the business if the leaders aren't aren't presenting a good, you know, a healthy way of interacting. It's yeah. more common, I think, even in multiple partner businesses, because, you know, everybody thinks a little bit differently.
0: Yeah, well... You've touched on something where I've heard from various businesses, you know, from businesses over the years, and especially in multi, multi partner practices. If they're not conscious around their culture, they're all just showing up doing their own thing. And culture is at the end of the day, it's the behaviors that we accept in the business. And more importantly, it's the behaviors that we reject. And that only works if we're consistent with both. So, If we're conscious about it, then we'll consciously work on those areas and we'll create the culture. But whether we consciously create the culture or not, we are still responsible for the culture as the leaders of the business because everyone just looks to how the leaders, how they're behaving and what they're saying. And they're looking for a match between those two things. And uh, if we're we're saying do this, but uh, we're actually behaving in a different way, um, that destroys culture quick as a flash.
1: Absolutely. And that's why I think it's so important to make sure that it's not just talking about what your mission, your vision, your values are, but actually having it written and having it be part of of the conversations that you have every day and having that provide the guardrails for decisions that you make. And then making sure every time that you're checking in with what you've all agreed upon. And that's why I like to talk about, you know, the idea of agreements uh, versus expectations. We all want to agree that this is how we're going to behave. I remember my kids even in um, kindergarten, you know, they would sit in class at the beginning of the first week of school and they'd all, the teacher would stand at the front of the class and she'd say, okay, so what are our rules going to be for this year? You know, and then she'd write them on the board and they'd all agree that, you know, we're not going to talk when someone else is talking or we're not going to scream, you know, we're not going to run around the classroom. So If everybody agrees to the rule, you know, sort of the rules of engagement, if you will, and and the purpose, the why for the business, and everyone's on the same page, then I think that it's much easier to then make decisions that are in alignment with that. And the alignment piece, I feel, is where things tend to go off track. When the leaders start making decisions that are not in alignment with what everyone thinks is the culture of the business or the goal of the business.
0: Okay. So we've bounced around a bit, but we've got, we've got culture and, and, and a picture of where the business is headed and, and why we're going. We've got some structure and, and system you know, for, for how and who does what. And everyone knows who's responsible for doing what. We then got some systems and processes for how we do those, those what we do type of things. Um, we've then got KPIs for keeping us on track and keeping score. Um, we've got our pricing and packaging, right? Um, have we covered everything?
1: I would, say, a couple
0: more I, would, I would say, I
1: would say, I would say that, that the, you know, I think the one that, that doesn't get, that gets talked about all the time right now is work-life balance, right? And to me, what I get really excited about is, and and as much as I love the exit planning piece, I love exit planning in so much as a business that you'd want to sell or a business someone would want to buy is a business you might want to keep running. And so I think a lot of practice owners professional services firms, practice owners, get to the point where they're just so sick of it they want out because they don't have that elusive work-life balance. And to me, work-life balance isn't really balanced because when you think balance, right, balance is, feels like a teeter-totter or a seesaw or something. Really, it's about integrating your work with the rest of your life because if you're a business owner, your work is a big part of your life, but it's not everything. And so one of the other things that I like to do is, is talk about how you can work on your life, not just work on your business. You were talking about working in your business versus on your business. I also think you need to spend some time working on your life to make sure that that piece of it is getting fulfilled as well, because otherwise we get down the road and we've done all the things. I remember my, you know, my my dad was a banker and I remember him coming out to visit me once and, um, He'd, he'd done very well. And he was sort of my hero, you know, workaholic, did all the things, worked all the weeks, all the time, never saw him. Um, and he came to me and said, you know, I just want to let you know I'm retiring. And I said, oh, my God, what? And he said, I'm retiring. You know, I've I've made enough money now that I probably have enough to do the things that I wanted to do in my life. I just don't know if I have enough time left. He said, you know, I can't get back all the time that I missed out with you and your sisters. and um I was gobsmacked. I was just having my first child and you know, I was going all out all the time. And I was like, oh my God, I should I should really think about this. And then I went back to work and, you know, just kept working, you know, 78 hours a week. And until about 10 years later when I went, Oh, remember that conversation. So I really think it's really important for us to address that part of it too, because I think there are a lot of uh, professional service providers out there who would do it a lot longer if they didn't feel like it was so hard all the time.
0: Yeah. So here's what I heard. I don't think it's what you said, but what I heard, and you heard it here first, folks, (laughs) what Dawn wants us to do is forget about work-life balance. What she wants us to do is have our work take over our life and for us to feel good about
1: it. No, no, that's not what I said. No, I want us to integrate all the parts of our lives together. I don't want it to be, you know, like, The thing is, there's no, if if you're chasing balance, you're setting yourself up for failure is what I'm saying. And I know you said that all of that tongue in cheek, but really the idea is that work shouldn't take over your life. Work is just one piece of a very valuable life. You want to have all the other things baked in there that you enjoy and that are important to you. And so in in addition to taking time out to work on your business, I want you to take time out to work on your life and make sure that it's fitting into this new vision of your business.
0: You you See, I turned that back around on you. (laughs) Yeah, you tried. So, so what we want to do is go and spend some time with our racehorses. Is that, is that better?
1: Yeah, go spend some time with your racehorses. Go bet on the ponies.
0: <laughs> okay. So, so it's interesting, though, like getting serious for a sec. Work-life balance is a bit of a, a misconception because a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners, I think you, know, you bang on when a lot of them just their business takes over their life and it all becomes overwhelming. And a lot of them get to the point where they go, look, I just need to get out of my business. I want to sell it. I want to sell it yesterday. You come in, you, you work on all those things we've already discussed today. You turn their business around, you've restructured it. They're probably working less in their business. They're now working on their business. They've got that career change. They've half a chance, there's a good chance that they've fallen back in love with their business and they're re-energized. Exactly. So it's no longer the chore. They may still be working 40, 50 plus hours a week, but now they're loving it again. So Exactly. In their mind, yep, exactly. that is balance. Because yes. if I'm loving it that's you know, exactly
1: I'm, it. If you're loving your business, then then that's then that's why I say it doesn't there, there's nothing that says it has to be fifty fifty. If you're loving what you're doing, and that's what I like to get people back to is the point where they're loving what they're doing because that's why they got into it in the first place. They loved it.
0: yeah, exactly so dawn we, we we've covered, I think from from the beginning and and covered from culture to structure to 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 strategy. What's the one key thing? You, you can only pick one. What's the top tip that you really want listeners to take away from our conversation today?
1: I I really want people to remember that feeling they had when they first took on their, their mission and, and that that's something they can get back to. There are, There are ways to restructure the way you're doing things, to change the way you're thinking about things, and it can be fun again. You know, that feeling that you had when you first were like, wow, I'm a practice owner. I'm a business owner. I, I want people to really understand that they can get back to that. And it doesn't have to be when they leave. They don't have to wait until they're ready to leave.
0: So exit planning is a success when you've fallen back in love with your business.
1: Yes. I like that. Can I use that?
0: I like that you. <laughs>
1: no, that's exactly it.
0: Brilliant. How are you doing? Look, I really appreciate you sharing your tips with us today on how professional service owners can structure their business and work on their business, get themselves out of the tools or off the tools and create a business of value that is exitable. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Daryl. It's a pleasure.